Sepsis is a life-threatening illness caused by your body's overwhelming response to an infection. UBC's Action on Sepsis podcast series focuses on telling the whole journey of sepsis from the perspective of the patient, with input from healthcare workers, researchers, and other individuals advocating for improved sepsis care nationally and globally. Now, join Christine Russell as she showcases a diverse collection of stories and shares knowledge from research and clinical fields to support learning so that we can help protect yourself and your loved ones. My name is Christine and my daughter's name is Ellie. This is our sepsis story. Life before sepsis was pretty normal. It was actually pretty boring. I was a 33-year-old married mom. We had two young boys at home. They were five and three and a half at the time. I managed a local bank and my husband was a teacher. Um, He taught at our local college. Our sepsis journey began on July 17th, 2014 at 7.32 p.m. You might wonder how I know that time so accurately, but it was actually the time that I gave birth to our daughter, Ellie. I had an uneventful pregnancy um, until the end when I came down with a pretty terrible cold at 38 weeks. And it and it struck me because it was the middle of, well, the middle to the end of June. Um, and usually that time wasn't really around flu season. So all I thought it was really was a cold and it was brushed off by both myself and my obstetrician. And by the time I went into labor, my symptoms from the, from the previous two weeks had totally disappeared. Ellie's delivery was uneventful, and she seemed healthy. Everything checked out normally until three hours after she, after she was delivered was when our lives totally changed. She had just come back to her room after having a bath. The nurses had actually asked me if I wanted to bath her or not, and I wanted to actually go home the next day. I remember clearly asking my nurse if everything went well. This was my third baby. I was ready to go home, anxious to get home to the boys. Um, and I asked the nurse, you know, right away, you know, if everything is good, can we go home? And I remember her saying, yeah, if everything's good, you can actually probably go home tomorrow morning and then come back for um, the metabolic, there's some metabolic testing that they do. And it's usually about 24 hours after delivery, but I could bring Ellie back and we could do those, do that testing. And so she, she offered to give Ellie a bath and it wasn't until Ellie brought, or the nurse brought Ellie back to the postpartum room and it was about 1130 at night and she put her in the, the little bassinet beside me and I picked her up um, and she had left the room and Ellie, I could tell she was starting to sort of choke in my arms and and just looked like her face started to turn blue and and I could tell she was struggling to to breathe and I and I panicked and I just started to scream and I and I was yelling and I totally forgot about the panic button so then I started hitting the panic button and I was just screaming for the nurse and she was wasn't far down the hallway and she came running back into the room and she just I remember she just grabbed her from me and she just ran she just ran out of the room and I I just sat there and I I I, I didn't even know what to do um, and, uh, and, and she took her, um, she took her to the, the neonatal intensive care unit where she had to be resuscitated and put on a CPAP machine. And they immediately placed her on, 
IV antibiotics, which I learned, later learned ultimately saved her life. Ellie's condition worsened overnight. Stephen had actually, my husband Stephen had actually left, and I remember calling him at about 3 o'clock in the morning in a panic and telling him to come back to come and see her. And we went over to the NICU at okay. three o'clock in the morning and, and saw her and she was, she had tubes and wires and everything on her. And we sat there and we just, we just sat there in total shock. Um, I mean, less than eight hours before then we had just delivered a, like a, a completely perfect baby. And then now we were just sitting there and, and not even knowing what was happening. Overnight, she got worse, uh, and and I also began to feel extremely ill the next morning. I uh, wasn't able to even go over and see her. I remember trying to get up and walk over there. Stephen had gone home to see the boys, um, and my mom had come that night to overnight. She had come from Calgary. My parents live in BC, and my mom had come so Stephen had gone to meet her to look after the boys. And I remember trying to walk over to the NICU to see her. And I got up and I could barely walk. I remember walking hunched over because my abdominal pain was so severe. I couldn't even get over there to see her. Uh, at first, it was chalked up to being after pains from birth. But since I had delivered to other Children prior to Ellie, I knew they weren't just after pains. By lunchtime, I had a fever of 105 and was quickly started on an IV of antibiotics and fluid. At about three o'clock in the afternoon now, so now we're just about 24 hours after Ellie was delivered, um, the pediatrician on call came in to let us know that Ellie was extremely sick. She had a blood infection, which was caused by group A streptococcus, which was a type of bacteria responsible for strep throat and was needed to immediately be airlifted to a larger center three hours away in Calgary. She was quickly becoming septic, and it was thought that whatever Ellie had, I also had. We had to sign some consent forms, so they brought the consent forms to Stephen and I to sign to airlift her. They were unsure if they, if she would survive the flight. Um, and a team from, a special team from the Foothills Hospital, a special NICU team of nurses, um, came to get her in a helicopter. Uh, they intubated her. Um, I remember to. When they were doing that, they were, the nurses wheeled me over in a wheelchair. Um, Stephen had gone home to pack a bag because he was going to drive behind um, because there was no room for family to go in the helicopter. It's just the medical staff and the baby that go. Um, so once she was intubated, the nurses brought me over to the NICU to be able to say goodbye to her because they weren't sure if that was going to be the last time that I would be able, we would be able to see her alive. Uh, they weren't sure if she would survive the flight. And I remember clearly the nurses from that team taking a an actual Polaroid picture of her and writing on the bottom, Ellie's first plane or Ellie's first flight. 
There was a period of about six hours before I could be transferred. They were sending me there as well uh, to see a specialized team of infectious disease doctors, as well as to be able to be closer to Ellie. Should she survive the flight, they wanted to make sure that I was there as with her so that obvious for obvious reasons that we were there as a family. Those those six hours were the most nerve-wracking six hours of my life. Ellie did survive the flight. Um, she was diagnosed with neonatal sepsis and spent 19 days in the NICU. Nine of those days were on a level three. Um, there's multiple levels on an NICU. Level three is the most critical level that is on an NICU. That was those that level is for the sickest babies. I remember too one of the one of the statements made by the nurses is when we went in to see her, finally when we were able to see her, that she was the biggest baby in there, but she was also the sickest baby in there. Um, most of the babies that we saw on that unit were micro preemie babies, babies that were between uh, around the 23-week gestation range. Ellie was a full-term 39-week, five-day-old baby, seven pounds, 4.5 ounces, um, but she was the sickest baby. She had a blood transfusion. She had eight lumbar punctures. She was treated with a meningitic dose of amp ampicillin with a central catheter. We were told to prepare for the worst and had a social worker and a chaplain visit us multiple times. For the first five days, I wasn't able to visit her as we were both put on isolation. We had some of the best nurses. Uh, they would text pictures um, to each other, so my nurse and Ellie's nurses, so that I could see her. The sight of her intubated and full of wires is something I will never forget. My 34th birthday present, though, was that I was able to hold her for the first time since she stopped breathing in my arms hours after she was born. I was diagnosed with streptococcal toxic shock syndrome, with, which almost resulted in a hysterectomy. I was treated with penicillin, only to find out that I was severely allergic I was discharged after seven days in the hospital and then made frequent trips back and forth to the NICU in Calgary. Uh, I was lucky enough that um, we had somewhere to stay in Calgary while Ellie was still admitted there. And then Ellie was discharged back and transferred back to the hospital in Medicine Hat where she finished up her treatment there. And then we were eventually discharged home. Ellie had weekly follow-ups for about a month after, which is a typical follow-up for any baby that is in the NICU for any cause, whether it's a premature baby or a baby that's sick. And so she was seen by a local pediatrician at the hospital for four weeks every week after she was born. After that, we just were seen by our regular pediatrician for regular milestone checkups, just like our boys were. 
post-sepsis follow-up care was never really um, a thing, I guess I could say, for both Ellie and I. We seemed to recover quite, I guess, normally for the first little while. I think for, for me, I basically ran on adrenaline. I mean, I had two toddlers at home, boys, and a newborn baby. And basically, I mean, I can probably speak for every mom out there or parent out there. You're you're running on adrenaline for the first, I don't know, probably what you feel like is 50 years of your life. But for the first year or so of of Ellie's life, I, I felt like she developed fairly normally. We didn't see really any concerning issues. It wasn't until around February of 2017 when Ellie was about two and a half years old. She began to experience episodes of severe screaming, um, what we thought was attributed to pain, some episodes of disorientation with no real identifiable trigger. She went from being a really great sleeper to being up multiple times in the night. Uh, She began repeating words and phrases and again experiencing that extreme what seemed to be pain accompanied by swelling in her hands and her feet, which was quite visible. She would tell me that she had sparkles on her feet where her toes and fingertips became very red and hot and the rest of her hand was really, really cold. Um, When she started to go to preschool, she had extreme trouble in the classroom, which carried on into her preschool years. Now we're going into kindergarten grade one. She has extreme trouble in the classroom with focus and attention. She frequently stares off. Her eyes have trouble focusing. Um, She does have a one-on-one aid now. We have multiple supports inside and outside of the classroom with speech, occupational therapy, We've had multiple visits over the last five years, five and a half years, back and forth to the Alberta Children's Hospital. We see multiple specialists, which include neurology, cardiology, metabolic genetics, um, rheumatology. Um, We've seen the pain clinic, cold and heat, any physical activity, stress, positive, negative exercise seems to worsen her symptoms. She has difficulty regulating her emotions at times. She suffers from severe fatigue at times. She doesn't seem to have the energy and stamina that a child her age should have. This has proven to become extremely difficult for our family, and Ellie especially. She lacks confidence when she isn't feeling well and is quite dependent and has severe separation anxiety. We're working on coping skills, not only to her pain, but also minor non-pain-related adversities. Not knowing what's happening to her, not knowing how severe the next episode may be is extremely stressful for us and, and for her. On the outside, she looks like a completely normal kid, um, which makes it a really difficult to try and navigate social situations for her, classroom situations, she she fears the unknown. She fears going places that she's not sure where she's going. I think part of that is that medical trauma piece of 
going to multiple doctor's appointments. Anytime we go in the car or have to go to Calgary, there's that severe anxiety of having to go to another doctor's appointment because we've been doing that for so, so, so long. We also don't have a firm diagnosis of of exactly what's causing all of this for Ellie. And, and I think part of that is there's just a lack of of understanding around could this have been from her illness at birth. And so part of it is is just the unknown of of what what this is all from and what this is all stemming from. And although a diagnosis won't solve all of her problems, it would definitely help provide her with a proper medical treatment and support at home in and out of the community. And, and, you know, it would it would also stop the back and forth of the appointments for her and just help her live sort of that normal life that she deserves. As for me, I, I mean, I've never really felt the same physically after she was born. I mean, I chalked it up to severe exhaustion again from having three kids under the age of five. Uh, but again, it's been seven years since Ellie was born, and I still suffer from some severe fatigue, severe leg pain. I've had frequent migraines. I have numbness in my arms and legs, dizziness, vertigo. Um, I've had some visual impacts as of late, uh, which are being investigated now. I've had multiple tests. But again, like Ellie, we're still investigating what it could be causing these symptoms. I have inquired about post-sepsis syndrome for both Ellie and myself. But again, as I mentioned, due to the lack of research around this diagnosis, we haven't been able to find any physician or specialist that, that agrees that this could be a possibility. I also, um, in 2016, two years almost to the day after Ellie's birth and diagnosis with a streptococcus infection, I had strep throat again and was being treated with antibiotics, luckily not penicillin. And seven days into the course of the antibiotics, I became violently ill uh, with a high fever, vomiting, severe abdominal pain, which was extremely, extremely similar to the feeling I experienced after um, uh, after I had Ellie approximately 24 hours after. I rec- recognized the symptoms I had immediately. Um, because they were almost identical to the symptoms I had after Ellie was born. And so I had actually called my husband at work and I said, I think I need to go to the hospital. And he said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I, I can't stand up straight. That was one of the things I said to him. I said, it's almost exactly the same as the feeling I had with Ellie. And I can't, I can't seem to stand up straight again. And so he drove me to emerge. And the emergency doctor, he was very young. And I said to him, I said, I know this sounds crazy, but I've had um, a severe um, blood infection before. And I think I might have a severe blood infection again. And he he actually took me seriously. And because he looked back through my chart and he took me seriously and he ran a whole bunch of blood work. My blood pressure was extremely low um, and he admitted me right away and as it turns out I was borderline 
septic. And I spent six days admitted to the hospital on IV antibiotics and fluids and blood pressure medication um, with a borderline um, reoccurrence of sepsis. Um, I remember some of the, um, I had some ICU nurses have to come in and they were the only ones that were able to start an IV for me because I they were having trouble starting an IV for me. I was so sick in the unit I was on. And I remember some of the ICU nurses that had come in, one of them in particular saying to me, you know, you were, you were the one that basically saved your own life or saved yourself from being admitted to the ICU because I recognized the signs of sepsis and I had a faster recovery because I was treated so quickly. Um, and through some of the research that I've been a part of um, from this, I one of the statistics is, is that a lot of patients that have been septic before, their reoccurrence of sepsis is a lot higher. And from somebody who has never been sick or in the hospital before, being sick and in the hospital two times in two years with a severe infection, I guess I was one of those statistics. <laughs> so... Before becoming sick, I didn't know the magnitude of sepsis. And after uh, seven years, I still at times have nightmares of what we went through. I also have, um, and I'm starting to get over this with with multiple years of therapy, um, had some pretty heavy guilt over not recognizing how sick I was when I was pregnant and not pushing my physicians more about, you know, could this severe sinus infection or cold that I had impact my pregnancy in any way? And yes, I didn't know. And what you don't know, you don't know. But I think you still have that level of guilt because for me, I was ultimately the one that made Ellie sick. And I think anybody who's ever been through this before, had a baby in the NICU, you you do, you blame yourself for your child getting sick or your child being in the NICU. And that's, that's something that I, I've had to work through and that I've lived with for a really, really long time. And, and I think uh, one of the things that I've really advocated for after having Ellie was trying to push for emotional support programs for parents who have had children in the NICU because there wasn't a lot of that after we were discharged. We had social work visits in the hospital at that time, but after being discharged, we didn't have a lot of support afterwards. And, and I think anyone who's been through a critical life-threatening illness knows you're in fight-or-flight mode, and a lot of this, this stuff doesn't hit you until you've you've had a chance to process it. And sometimes that processing doesn't happen until months or years after you've been through it. And so just knowing that there is that support there available, um, whether that's peer support or support from a foundation or a network that's available for people, or even just hearing other people's stories, whether that's being in an NICU or having sepsis, just knowing that there's people that have lived that experience is so important. And that having discussions around the emotional 
piece of sepsis is so important to hear other people's stories. Another question that always comes up, and I think when I tell our story, the question of how, how did this happen, comes up a lot. And it comes up, I think, a lot when, when sepsis patients tell their stories. Because sometimes it's not always clear how this happens. And for us, the question has never, ever really been answered. Which when you're trying to move past such a traumatic event, it's a difficult one to get past when you don't have an answer to. Some theories were that the cold I had caught had been through been from a dormant strep infection that had been contracted from when my husband had a positive group A strep infection around June. So Ellie was born July 17th and my husband Stephen had been sick with strep throat, a positive strep throat case. I think it was around the beginning of June of that same year. And I wasn't sick. I mean, I I was I I mean I had a cold, but I didn't have typical strep throat symptoms. So when I had mentioned that around 37 weeks pregnant at the end of June-ish, when I had that cold, and I had mentioned to my obstetrician that I had a cold and I was stuffed up, I didn't have that typical sore throat, I didn't have a fever, um, and my symptoms really just presented as a cold, a head cold, my obstetrician said, you know, if you don't have symptoms of strep throat, I, I don't really need to swab you, throat swab you for strep throat. And if you don't have a positive strep throat swab, there's no reason to be on antibiotics for strep throat. And at that time, my husband, Stephen, had been through his course of strep throat antibiotics and had his symptoms and his strep throat had resolved. So really, I mean, we really didn't have an answer as to, you know, where it had come from. There has really been no firm conclusion as to where it had come from. I mean, another theory was that it was possible that it was a hospital-borne infection um, and that I may have contracted it from someone in the hospital during my delivery. But again, they had tested everyone um, because, again, they weren't sure if I had given it to anybody during my delivery. So anybody that had been in contact with me during my delivery had been tested so that my delivery nurse, the obstetrician on call that had delivered my baby, anybody that had been in contact with me, from what I understand, had been tested. We had been in close contact with the medical officer of health for the south zone of Alberta. I remember being in the hospital bed at the Foothills Hospital quite sick and being on speakerphone with my husband and the medical officer of health in my hospital bed uh, discussing who we had been in contact with and trying to find some form of contact tracing due to the nature of the illness. Group A strep is considered a communicable disease and requires reporting to the province and contact tracing, which, as everybody knows now, um, with COVID-19, is the similar process. And unlike COVID-19, group A strep and invasive group A strep, which is what we had, can be treated by antibiotics, luckily. And so my parents, who were now in Medicine Hat, and my two boys at home, and my husband had all been now put on 
and like my husband was on, put on another round of antibiotics and everybody in my house before we came home were all also put on another round of antibiotics just to make sure that there was no strep in our house at all just because of the severity of that particular bacteria. Since becoming sick and having a sick baby, I've become extremely involved and very interested in not only improving sepsis care, but healthcare as a whole in not only our province, but nationally. I have become actively involved in multiple capacities at a provincial level, but also at a national level. I work work very closely with Alberta Health Services as a patient advisor and with Sepsis Canada, which is a newly formed CHR-funded network focusing on health on sepsis research. And last but not least, and why we're here today, I am working extremely closely and have been for the last two years with UBC's Action on Sepsis Research Cluster, in which I will be your host of this patient-led podcast, where we will be focused on telling the whole journey of sepsis from the perspective of the patient along with input from healthcare workers, researchers, and other individuals advocating for improving sepsis care nationally and globally. I hope you can join us for our next episode. It could ultimately save a life. This has been the University of British Columbia's Action on Sepsis podcast. We thank the brave sepsis survivors who have come forward to share their stories. Our review panel that includes physicians, clinicians, and researchers, and our patient advisors. If you liked this podcast, make sure to hit subscribe to keep up with the latest episodes and give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Let us know what you think about this week's topic and join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. For links to topics on this episode, additional resources, Resources, or to listen to other Action on Sepsis podcast episodes, please visit our website at sepsis.ubc.ca slash podcast. Action on Sepsis is a plugged-in media production for the University of British Columbia. Thanks for listening.